0: I'd like to speak this evening about what it means to orient our lives towards freedom. And in the context of our being here together in this retreat and engaging in the practice of meditation as we have been doing for the pretty much 24 hours or a little more that we've been here. There's lots of ways we can understand what we are, or we can describe what we're doing, what we're engaging in here. Obviously, meditation is the, the word we maybe use the most, or refer to, and understandably, in terms of that. But what do we mean by meditation in this context? It's not just about an engagement with some tools, or techniques, or ways of applying ourselves. Although they're really central and essential aspects of what we're engaging with here. What the meditation, what the practice, what the retreat is in the service of really is the process of freeing our hearts, freeing our minds, freeing our lives from the the constriction, the entanglement and the bondage which all too easily and often it seems can dominate our experience and certainly appear if one reads the newspaper to to dominate our world. The fear, the the greed, the alienation. So much tragically it seems our world is impacted and our lives and individually We know about suffering, about what it is that we would wish to be free from. And the practice of meditation is in the service of what allows our hearts to be free. And there are many aspects to this that we'll speak about over these days together. And the element I'd like to touch upon this evening is the practice of what it means to let go and how to understand our meditation in this context. It's quite understandable and not at all uncommon to come to a retreat such as this, whether for the first time that we're coming to a retreat or whether we've been a regular yogi over years or perhaps even decades. And to come with a sense of wanting to bring about a particular result, wanting to find the the way, the tool, the technique, the particular teaching or the form or the teacher who will provide for us a way of getting the results that we seek, what it is that we want. and There's something valid, something appropriate, something important in that. It is part of our practice. Yet, there's something more that's possible. And this is really the possibility of awakening our lives, awakening our hearts. And if we're interested in this, if this is something that touches us, that engages us, that we feel that we want to explore, then I think it's really important to be asking ourselves what we're really doing here on a meditation retreat, apart from, obviously, meditation. There's an interesting quote that I uh, encountered, I'm not quite sure where, that says something along the lines of, if you keep going in the direction you're headed, that is where you're going to end up. And I find it a very interesting statement. In a way, it's very simple. It's not too complex or necessarily, on the surface of it, profound. If you keep going in the direction you're headed, that is where you're going to end up. It's kind of, you know, we can see that in walking meditation. If we keep going that way, we'll end up over there. Pretty straightforward. No rocket science involved. And yet, if one contemplates that, one might even have the sense of of um, sort of hopefulness, a sense of uh, um, like possibility. Oh, if I keep going in this direction, I'm going to end up where I'm headed. There might be a sense of uplift in hearing that. And there could equally be a sense of, oh no, oh my gosh, oh dear, if I keep going in the direction I'm headed, I'm going to end up that way. And it was really one of the fundamental understandings of the Buddha that our lives are not something preordained or set in stone. That they are configured by the way we orient ourselves, by the intentionality, the directionality, the aspiration, and the intention that we bring to bear in our life unfolds as our life and what we receive in it. And so, reflecting on or questioning, you know, where are we heading? What are we about? What's the orientation of my life? This is a good question to return to. Not that we necessarily have to have an answer every time. We certainly don't have to have a, a better answer than the next person. Or the right answer even. But being engaged with the question was something, I think, for the Buddha in his life, if one, as one reads the stories and the, the way he spoke about his situation, there was a, a profound questioning as to where was my life going? This was something that occurred to him. And it's something perhaps that's occurred to us. Certainly it's, for me, been a a central and ongoing theme that I've found myself coming back to again and again. The Buddha, in his own life, in his encounter with and recognition of suffering, of unsatisfactoriness, of this conditional aspect or dimension of our lives and of all of life that's not as we wish it to be, that's not in our control, that's not necessarily obviously revealing to us or offering to us a sense of fulfillment, satisfaction, ease, well-being. He, in his understanding, in his practice, recognized that this condition that we can often feel ourselves bound or entangled by, a sense of limitation, or unease, dis-ease even, in life, arises out of a blindness. Blindness out of not truly seeing the way things are. And the word he used for this was avidya, not seeing. It's often translated as ignorance, which I find a little pejorative. I think it's actually more useful to think of it as blindness. We don't necessarily see, we don't necessarily yet understand or fully understand how to live well in life, and yet we can. We can understand what it is that brings freedom we can understand the way to release our hearts from the entanglement of suffering, from the bondage to conditionality and things that are not in our control. And through this understanding and aligning our life with that, the possibility of transformation and the experience, the embodiment of a transformed life is possible for us. and so this question of well, what's our orientation what what are we making the in a way the lodestone or the guiding light or the north point of our life's compass the buddha saw in his in his experience in his practice and spoke about many times in many ways the fundamental causative factor for this entanglement and suffering as what he called attachment, which expresses a way of relating to our experience in which we're attempting to place upon it a certain demand that it be in accordance with our wish rather than in accordance with the way it actually is. And that this tendency, this pattern, this orientation to not see how things are, clearly, and to seek to impose upon them our preference, our demand, our desire, our expectation, that this is how we become entangled. This is fundamentally the cause of suffering, of limitation, of bondage, And in seeing this, seeing that this imposing of pressure upon ourselves, others, life, this imposing of pressure upon is the cause of suffering. Then we equally can see, we can recognize that letting go of this tendency, this habit, this deeply ingrained compulsion, it seems, letting go of this is the basis of freedom. Letting go of the way in which we demand things to be other than as they are. Letting go, and the word we sometimes use for this, renunciation, is not something that has a great degree of popular currency in the Western world. It doesn't really sound like something that's particularly cool or sexy or really going to be a lot of use to us. It's sort of the thing that sort of loses and uh, those who don't really have any great power are required to do in the face of others who are in charge or in control of life or imagine themselves to be. That sense of renunciation is often associated for us with a feeling of deprivation, of not getting what what I need. Or of somehow a puritanical attitude to life that rejects that which is lovely, that which is beautiful. That denies the value and the appropriateness of things that give uplift to our heart. And this isn't what's being suggested or pointed to here in this. Correctly understood, letting go, renunciation is actually the basis of true peace and freedom, of ease and rest. And it's really what comes when we release ourselves from the compulsion of the mind's conditioned patterns and habits. And there's lots of ways we can see this, we can explore this in our practice. One of the interesting things about meditation is that for most of us we'll find ourselves playing out the habits of our lives, all the patterns, all the conditioning, all the tendencies that we came to meditation to perhaps and hopefully escape from, we'll find ourselves playing them out in the way we engage with meditation practice. And so it might sometimes seem that, well, you know, it's not really all that different than my life, is it? We come along to meditation, we want certain things to happen. Who, who didn't come here wanting, not wanting something to happen? Or want, you know, who, who, who didn't come here hoping that other things, I'm doubling up my wants and nots, <laughs> aren't I? It's funny to see even one's mind, when you think you know you've got the words in the right order, sometimes doesn't seem to produce them out of your mouth. It's like, what's going on there? Who's in charge of this? So sometimes in a situation like this, we see how our experience isn't the way we want it. And there comes so quickly the sense of, but I should get it right. How, how, can, how can I be sitting up here talking to almost 100 people, getting the words in the wrong order? That's not allowed. Or perhaps more commonly, since most of you, at least in the context of this retreat, won't Necessarily be in that situation, but how can it be that I'm sitting here to, intending to be calm and peaceful and focused, and actually, what I'm experiencing is reactivity or agitation or disconnectedness or distractedness, or sometimes I can't even be bothered? You know, how does that come to be? How does that come to be? One of the ways that our habitual tendencies in life show up in meditation is the way we look at it with a sort of a measuring mind. A way in which we're looking to see, am I getting it right? Am I succeeding? Have I progressed sufficiently? Have I got to where I should be by now? We're so used to looking and thinking in that way. And some of the, the questions that might arise for us around whether we're doing it okay or doing it right, we're sort of measuring aspects of our experience to see how well we're doing. And yet, really, ultimately, the measure of our practice is not determined by the experience we have when we're meditating. The measure of our practice is not whether we're feeling particularly calm and peaceful or whether we're feeling agitated or confused. Really, the measure of our practice is in the degree to which we can see what's happening and the willingness we have to actually meet that experience as it is, to not put pressure on it or ourselves to be other than as it is. Because in that possibility, there's something very immediate and directly available to us that isn't a product that comes to us at the end of a long process, that we get to wrap up and hopefully take home with us at the end of the retreat, sort of our, sort of our trophy meditation experience. We've heard about in the books or read about in books, and you know we're hoping to capture to bag a good one somewhere along the way. You know that's such a common orientation for us, isn't it? And yet, it's really not what this is about here in meditation practice on this retreat. So, if we ask ourselves that ultimately the concern here is to understand, you know, where, what's the direction I'm headed in? Because that's where we're going to end up. Coming back to that reflection, well, if I'm heading in a direction, if I'm setting myself up in the meditation to be trying to get somewhere, then where we're going to end up is always trying to get somewhere. That's what happens to us. Have you, you know, it's this very interesting thing. Isn't it? No matter how many things we get, no matter how many experiences we have, if we're looking to those things or experiences to fulfill us, then no matter how many of them we get, we're always looking for more. We never get to stop. It never comes to an end, that process. So if we notice that we're kind of really wanting, oh, I hope I could have a nice meditation, or it's more a sense of, you know, it's not allowed. I'm not allowed to have a bad meditation, whatever that might be. Good meditation, bad meditation. That's a product of our mind. But we see the tendency, if there's a grasping for or a pushing away at our experience, even in the guise of doing meditation, we're still reinforcing those tendencies. We're still giving energy, force and power to the tendencies of of craving. And the tendencies of aversion. And that if we stop and let ourselves experience directly what it's like to be in the grip of these, what we see is they're really painful. It really hurts. And we quite naturally, I think, ask ourselves, do I want to keep supporting this? So this this practice invites us to be checking in with whether or not we're setting up on an ongoing basis, setting up some place other than where we are that we're trying to get to. Noticing how what that does is it takes us out of where we are into an image or an idea of how things could be or should be or might be or must be that we're somehow projecting into the future. And that movement out of where we are is a lot of what we're learning to first of all see, ultimately to understand and to free ourselves from, to not actually leave where we are, to come to understand what is already here more fully and deeply and to see, to allow ourselves to receive what our life is already offering us that perhaps we don't recognize because we're looking for something else. So the orientation of a retreat and of this practice is really 180 degrees different, so completely opposite to that movement that we see in ourselves and in life and in the world very much, of trying to get to have more and more and more. And if we look at our world, we see the tragedy that that brings. The uh, kind of, the insanity, really, of being told. And I don't know if this is what message you're being given here in, in, in the States, but certainly in Europe and in England, where I live, um, there's this dual message going out in terms of the economy saying everybody needs to spend or to, to sort of be more frugal and save and, and not be so sort of sort of casual about how we use money. And at the same time, everybody's got to buy more things so the economy can get going. And it's really amazing to me that these two messages are being pumped out at the same time seeing huh, that those two things can't work. And it's uh, in some ways our world is is coming to the the point in which the failure and the empty in in terms of the, uh, the, the unsustainableness of that whole materialistic tendency is becoming more and more obviously exposed. But materialism, this tendency to look for, to want, to have, to get is something very subtle, something very profound in the way it expresses itself. This movement of attachment, of, of grasping, of, of wanting to have or to not have certain forms of experience. At an initial level, it shows up, and we're probably very sort of A, familiar with, and also not really taken in by this pull towards having more things. I can't imagine... You know, why you would come along to a retreat if you really thought the greatest happiness in life would come from having more things. It wouldn't make any sense to be here, would it? I mean, you know, for starters, we're missing out on all the New Year sales. You know, (laughs) it's quite amazing to see people fighting to get through the doors, to get into those, you know, palaces of our culture. And imagine what goes on in one's life and one's heart that this is something one would trample over another person for. Because people do. And not out of judgment, but really, in fact, for me, a sense of compassion for the, gosh, what emptiness or what what sort of lack of deep meaning in one's life, if that becomes something that would lead one to disregard the well-being of those around one. And yet, of course, easily we can be caught, drawn into such things. That surface level of materialism tends to show up for us in a retreat in a different way, and it's perhaps not the surface level, but the the second level of that kind of materialism is in the wish for kinds certain kinds of experience, rather than the attempt to get things. We we come, and this is the the, the sort of the more enlightened version it seems. We come and we're looking to get. The experiences that we want, that we've heard of, that sound good. You know, whatever happened to the Buddha under the tree, yes, please. I'd like a double helping, you know, and I'd like it soon, because you know, I'm not sure how long I can stand my knees or my busy mind. And that that kind of looking, wanting for experience. Particular experiences. And what happens to us when we're caught in the trance, in the in the engagement with all of that? For me, one of the strongest experiences and memories I have of how that works is uh, once when I was uh, sitting a retreat at Guy House um, in England, which is the retreat centre near where I live, and uh, the cooks had prepared a, a wonderful lasagna for, for, for lunch, and lasagna is something I particularly love. I kind of like this this particular thing when I have the opportunity to eat it. It's like I just get excited. It's, it's like a kid. It, well, I'm like a kid. It's, it's like a lasagna. But, uh, um, and I had this experience once where the lasagna was served and I knew it was happening and it was like, wow. And, you know, however much practice I'd done didn't really matter at this point. It was like, this is going to make my retreat. <laughs> this is going to give me the satisfaction, the, the experience that I really want. And I... I Managed to somehow restrain myself from being right at the front of the queue, but I was pretty close. You know, I didn't want it to look like I was at the front of the queue, and I was there. And as I was going, what, what was actually happening? On reflection, I can see that as I was going to get this lasagna, I was actually really, really anxious because I was thinking, you know, how much can I take? How much can I take without looking greedy? You know, and and then I took a, what I think was a relatively moderate portion. It wasn't. It was actually way more than I needed. But I took it back to my seat, and I was thinking, as I started eating it, I wonder if there'll be enough for seconds. I wonder if there'll be enough for seconds. And this, this kind of, I was shoveling this in, hoping there'll be enough for seconds. And what was really tragic, which I only realized afterwards, is that when I got to the end of that bowl of food, I was stuffed. I actually, my stomach hurt. I didn't want any more. I hadn't actually enjoyed it. Because I've been too busy wanting something that it couldn't give me. And yet at the same time as the wanting the fear that it wouldn't somehow give it to me. Wanting it to be, again, that sense of more, more, more. That's a kind of more gross version of what we sometimes do in meditation. You know, we get a few moments. We're sitting here, we're trying to watch our breath, or we're trying to be present, we're trying to come back. The instructions make it sound like it should be simple, but it doesn't appear to be for me or most of us, it seems. And then there's a moment of calm. And it's like, oh, 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 thank you. You know, we're not sure who to thank, but thank you. You know, maybe thank me. Maybe it was, you know, I did it. Not me, but you know, whoever it is that's happening, that it's happening to. And and then immediately, how did I do that? How did how did I make that happen? Was it that I, you know, I sort of sat a little bit straighter, or maybe I was, you know, because I put my left foot in front instead of my right. And we're trying to figure it out. And and you know, how long is it going to last? And how co- well you know, at some point we realize, oh, we're not actually having an experience of calm and peace and connectedness. That happened for about two moments before we realized it was happening. And then the mind grabbed it and started to try and keep hold of it. Again, that, that tendency to take hold of, the grasping, the Attachment to keeping hold of things in that way. So painful and ultimately tragic and disappointing. We notice how our minds can be so. like we're looking, we're looking, we're looking. Have you noticed yourself reading the labels on the tea bags? <laughs> Some of them have little labels on them. It's really interesting. Or it must be, because I've certainly found myself reading labels on tea bags on a retreat. It's the only time I ever do it. Or going back to the schedule and reading it again, looking to see what's going to happen later. You know, it's more of the same. (laughs) It hasn't changed since the last time we looked at it. And yet, it's this sense of sort of hunger almost. Start being interested in what that's like. Start being interested in what's happening there. It's not that it's a bad thing or a wrong thing or you shouldn't have done it or that you need to blame yourself in any way if you've noticed it happening. But if we start to see that tendency, whether in the meditation or in the mealtime or at any time, we're looking for something. We're looking for something. Just to see if we can stop. Let go of that movement out, that movement away, that movement towards something else. And see, what's it like right here? What's it like if I turn back, if I return, if I turn again towards this moment, this experience, what's actually happening right here and right now? Because wherever we're we're leaning into, we're seeking for, we're, grasping after. We're seeking to fulfill that urge of attaching, of getting hold of. Wherever that's going on, there's a contracting, there's a tightening, there's a a way in which the the space of heart and mind and actually our very body shrinks, solidifies, tightens, loses its natural fluidity, its natural space and spaciousness and its sense of ease and well-being equally is lost in that contraction. And so a lot of what we can encounter when we first engage in the practice is those places of contraction and body and heart and mind. And we can feel them as not easy to experience or to be with. And it's really important to just gently and kindly allow our experience to be as it is. Allow what is here as it is. And it's also important here in that to, when we're talking or when I'm talking as, as I am about the, the, that process of seeing how we get attached, how we start somehow imputing into some thing or situation that, and the language is always like this, it's like, I must have, if I have then it's going to be great, it's going to be okay, it's going to be what I wanted. Or I must absolutely not have or I must get rid of this because if I do it's going to be terrible, horrible, you know, the end of the world. The the, the the thought doesn't necessarily complete in the using of those words, but often that's what's being suggested in it, in the I must or I must not. I, I, mu- I need this. I can't experience that. Often what it's really about is that actually this is something that we might like or this might be something we don't like. And we don't necessarily trust in our capacity to rest in the simple connection and presence, the openness, the very awareness of our life, the awareness of life itself and to receive the nourishment of that, to receive really the blessing and the benediction of the fact that we're here at all. The fact that we're alive at all. It's not something we can take for granted. I was out going for a a run a couple of evenings ago, and uh, as I it was in the dark, and I had a little torch clipped to my uh, waistband on my on my trousers, and as I was running, at one point I was actually just coming along in front of the uh, front of the I M S building. At that point in the the loop that I was following, um, I sort of noticed a pair of eyes and something scampering along beside me in the grass. And I sort of turned towards it and. Grabbed the the light and pointed at it, and there was a little um, creature. It was about this big and had a triangular face and little eyes and a sort of a sort of a somewhat hairless tail. And it was a, a possum, or well, so I found out later talking to a friend who knows about such things. I just thought, mm, interesting creature, what's that? Um, and it was really just kind of some sweet little moment of connection and warmth and seeing that. And this evening I was out running again and. Uh, a couple of miles away from that place, somewhere down there, on the way back from my run, I found another possum. But this was a dead one on the road. And just recently died. I don't think it was there when I headed out. And there's just that sense of, ha huh, It may or may not have been the same little creature. But just, huh. Oh, huh, this little life. And I just picked it up because it was whole in a sense. It obviously had just died recently and just... Placed it at the foot of a tree. But something about that, oh gosh, you know, so much of what we think is so important that we must make happen, or so much pressure we create around ourselves, if we just realize the preciousness of our existence at all, the fact that we're here at all. Something in that perhaps allows us to, to shift our orientation. So, this tender, heartful quality where we can connect, where we can feel touched by something, to understand that this is when we talk about attachment, we're not talking about that quality of care and connectedness and the way we can feel connection. The word attachment is used in um, sort of modern Western psychology to describe something that's actually very different than this craving and clinging and sort of pressure. That we create through the demanding things to be a certain way, in that context, and in the, and so just so to to be clear with that, um, in in the psychological usage of it, is referring to the very healthy and necessary bond that forms, primarily or initially, and hopefully between the the infant and the the, the mothering person, the person, the primary caregiver of the early infancy, but uh, equally can be in other relationships. And that sense of attaching is about a healthy connectedness and a, and, a, and a way in which that supports well-being. And so that's a very different usage of the word attachment and that's not how I've been using it. That's not the meaning I'm referring to when I've been using it here. And so what we're interested in understanding is the, the unskillful or unhealthy pressure that we place upon ourselves, upon the world, upon ourselves. And what it is to actually release ourselves from this. It's not something that we are obliged to continue to do. And yet, in order to free ourselves in this, we need to understand that happiness, that satisfaction, that well-being, ultimately doesn't come from controlling and manipulating experience. Often when I hear and am asked questions about what works or does this work or will this work in meditation, what I have a sense is perhaps going on is, will this technique, will this approach, will it produce the experience I want? And I think we can really question that. That if if we're not using the meditation to produce a particular experience what are we doing here? I mean, you might hear that and think, hmm, I'm not sure, I think I'll go home. Hopefully it won't have that effect, certainly not the intention. There is a process of training, of development here, in which we're cultivating certain qualities and possibilities. True satisfaction is something that arises through the quality of conscious presence, the way in which we can embody an awareness in life. That isn't looking for something outside of where we already are. And this process of training requires a a firmness and yet a gentleness. A clarity and yet a Kindliness. So that when we give ourselves the instruction, and we, we hear the instruction, we form the intention to connect with our experience, to be present with what's here, to notice what arises, and using the breath and the body as a foundation for that, but yet not making other experiences into somehow problems or enemies, not rejecting what arises in any way or form, and yet being interested to see, how can I meet this? How can I be present here? In that, those experiences that happen for us all where we're not present, we need to know how to hold that. To not make that a mistake or a problem or a failure in any way. To certainly not judge or blame or criticize ourselves for that. And the very lovely image sometimes used that I I really like is it's like training a puppy. To heal. A puppy, if it's to live in the human world, needs to know a few things that will help it live and survive and be safe. And one thing is to be able to come and stay when called. The traditional command or instruction is heal. But when you bring a puppy and put it, I've done this once when I was young, you put it behind your heel and say, heal, what does it do? Does it stay there? No, it runs away. So you get it and you bring it back and you say again, heal, and it runs away. What happens if every time it runs away, you yell at it and say, bad dog, hit it with a stick, or you swear at it, or you know try and scare it into staying? Does it work? No. It pretty quickly decides, that guy's kind of grumpy. I'm not staying anywhere near him. And the first chance it gets, it's off. And yet, if every time the puppy runs away, we say, huh, there you are. Come over here. Oh, you've gone over there. Whether, you know, maybe chasing a butterfly, sniffing a flower, watering a tree. It's what puppies do. Every time, oh, come back. After a while, the puppy starts to think, oh, this person's kind of friendly. Maybe I'll hang out here. See what happens. Our mind is kind of like that. To, to bring a sense of kindliness. To, to not be demanding that our mind settle more quickly than it does but being interested to watch the process, being interested to see what happens here. So this process of letting go that really underpins the journey of meditation, we can see this in the... We're learning to let go of those things that take us away from being here, from seeing clearly, from knowing what the truth of our life is in this moment. It's not so much that we're developing concentration and calm or kindness and wisdom. It's actually that we're learning to, to free ourselves, to not support those things that take us away from the, from the natural, the intrinsic clarity, the, the natural kindliness And the inherent peacefulness of what is most true, most real, most fundamental in life. So noticing the process of distractedness is something that takes us away from a simple presence, a simple awareness. We're learning to let go of that distractedness when we notice it by reconnecting. Noticing that when there's an unkindness, a harshness, a judgmentalness, a pressure that we place on ourselves or our experience or that we direct towards others, seeing that oh, we can actually come back to a sense of allowing or kindliness just by letting that go, just by not having to believe or give authority to that habit. And likewise, in terms of understanding, just leaving the space open to Not assume our view and our perception is always giving us an accurate picture. Leaving some space for discovery. Leaving some room to see beyond and through what we've imagined or conceived about our lives and about this world. Because there is so much more here than our minds have and that our minds can conceive. And yet, what is here we can know and understand directly for ourselves each of our hearts have that capacity so not investing in the mind in the thinking mind as the solution to our lives letting go of the idea that it's our mind it's the thinking intellectual function that somehow is Either the problem here, which we sometimes think, or the solution, which is perhaps the more the worldly view of it. We tend to, before we engage in meditation, think, you know, thinking will be the solution. Then we come on meditation retreat and we're thinking, stopping thinking will be the solution. Actually, they're both just thoughts. Neither of those positionalities, and in fact no positionality, is ultimately the solution. Because this isn't about a solution to a problem. It's so easy to take that way of looking at it. It's more about discovering what's real and most true here. And so seeing at times the way our minds seek to escape or look for security, get busy in so many ways, and just putting it down again and again, coming back again and again into the simple quality of knowing that's here. That's just natural in letting go of the distractedness or the fantasy or the busyness, the planning, the worrying. Noticing when there's reactions against our experience, we can just let it be. We don't have to make it different than it is. Even the reactivity, we can include that. We can see it. We don't have to define ourselves by it. One of the deepest and most pervasive and challenging dimensions of materialism that we are invited to engage with through meditation practice is the materialistic orientation that expresses itself in the form of trying to become someone, trying to be a certain way, trying to establish for ourselves a persona, an identity, an image that conforms with what we like or what we believe should be what or how or who we are. And so much of the struggle we have with our experience is because it doesn't fit in with that picture. It doesn't fit in with that way we think, I'm supposed to be a good meditator now, so how is that going to look? Well, A, I don't move, I shouldn't move, should I? I mean, the Buddha hasn't moved all day. <laughs> it's a bit easier when you're, you know, a large chunk of bronze or some form of metal. Even if we sit absolutely still, you know, if you really don't move, in about three or four minutes you're dead because you're, you have to move to breathe. So we're not here to not move. The only things that don't move aren't really alive. And yet, again, that's just a, another way in which we, we somehow we have this image of how we're supposed to be. Or someone with a calm mind. Someone with an ever-forgiving and loving heart. Actually, no. Yes, that's a beautiful aspiration. We can discover an incredible boundlessness of kindness and remarkable depths of stillness and steadiness through practice. But that isn't something that we are here to become by somehow fixing ourselves or fitting ourselves into an idea or a model. Actually, letting go of the pressure that we place upon ourselves. And this is a great letting go. It's one of the greatest gifts we can offer to ourselves. And to see that this shows to us, when we, when we discover, when we understand this, the truth of what this is pointing to, it's not deprivation, letting go is not deprivation. It's in fact a profound act of compassion for ourselves. It's what releases us from suffering, the suffering that's born of setting up a position from which we contend with the way things are, releasing ourselves from that, releasing our contention with life there's a natural peace there's a natural ease and there's a a joy and a delight that comes quite simply and immediately. There's a story that speaks of this I like to share of a uh, a great Sufi teacher who was well-renowned for her, her wisdom, her compassion, her joy, and her austerity. And all the people who came to practice at her center were required to live very simply with just two very simple meals and they were not allowed to dress with fancy clothes and they weren't allowed to have any kind of sort of luxurious possessions. And they were all very committed and inspired and practicing with her, but they noticed that every saturday she would go down to the local village market they weren't allowed to but she would go down to the market and there was all these magnificent things on sale and available all these foods and all these goods and all these services bodywork and other things you could she would come back at the end of the morning after spending a couple of hours there and she'd be smiling radiant and after a while one of the uh, students plucked up his courage he asked the, the teacher he asked her um you know we really understand the value of all this letting go and renunciation and simplicity and all that, but why is it that every Saturday you get out into the market and you come back looking so radiant? And she said, she responded, you know, I go down to the market every Saturday and spend my time there because it gives me great joy to see all the things that I am happy without. There's an incredible freedom and understanding that there's a happiness without. There's a contentment without. There's an ease. There's a well-being. There's a joy without. That isn't about having lost something, but actually about having discovered what's something, what we can never lose. Understanding that life is here to be discovered not to be controlled to be manipulated or fitted into our ideas this is the basis of freedom Ajahn Chah a great teacher from the from Thailand who lived in the 20th century he once said let go a little and you'll know a little peace let go a lot and you will know a lot of peace. Let go completely and you will know complete peace and natural freedom. Your struggle with the world will have come to an end. So as we continue together in this journey, in this practice, just to perhaps so far as you find it useful or helpful, to to bring this orientation to bear in how we're engaging in the practice, to not be seeking for something other, to not be looking somewhere else, but to be interested in what's right here. This life as it is. To know this as it is. And then really the truth, the peace, the freedom that we seek for, that we long for, it's here for us, just as it is, radiant and unbound. So let's sit quietly for a moment or two together. So may we all, in our practice here and through our lives, come to rest more deeply where we are and to know the letting go that liberates our hearts for our own well-being and for the welfare of all be.